I was driving through Knoxville, Tennessee in bumper-to-bumper traffic, and thank God it was not game day, when my phone rang and I picked it up, and it was uh, David Simmons, who was a friend from my hometown in South Georgia, Albany, Georgia, and he said, I know who you need to talk to, and I said, David, when your phone rings and I haven't heard from you in ages, I thought somebody had died, and he said, you've got to talk to Ann Churchwell, Ann Churchwell Stokes, and her parents, father in particular, ran a department store, actually a little chain of department stores called Churchwell's. And of course I knew her name and she was adopted and I was adopted. She's a little bit older than me, like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. And she was like the model adoptee when I was growing up. And I always, I mean, just full, just full of history and story after story after story. And so I said, sure, how can I turn you down? This, this is great. And so when I was back in Albany, I went and talked to Ann. That's where today's episode, that's how these great episodes come about. I just wanted you to know. I would starve to death before I ask you for a piece of bread. But I, I don't mind asking anybody, help me help these people. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson, and welcome to Man Listening. This week, Ann Churchwell Stokes, who was an adoptee in late 40s, right after World War II. There was a whole generation of adoptees called the baby scoop era and she and I were both a part of it but she was a little bit before me and in as much as I've let you hear from adoptees who you know always wanted to know who their birth parents were I thought you should hear from an adoptee who never really wanted to know about her birth parents considered it disloyal so I mean it's good to hear different perspectives I think Plus, she tells great stories, really great stories, and Churchwell Stokes. Where were you born? In Atlanta, at Emory. How, do you, know, how do you know that? Because I have my adoption papers. How did you get them? They were in the safe at Churchwell store, and they fell out of the safe. And somebody called to say, put it back in the, put these papers back in the safe. And I looked, and it had all the detail. I'd known all my life that I was adopted, but I did not know the details of names and whatever. But the interesting thing about my being born at Emory, my daddy met my grandmother, and she said, what are you going to name her? He, she said if her mother had kept her, she was going to name her Ann. Daddy said her name is Ann. She's named for my mother. So I'm Ann. With an E? With an, an E, like the queen. <laughs> and my children call me Queen Ann when I'm good <laughs> and when I'm naughty as a mother. <laughs> so you know you're in trouble when they say mother. Mother. <laughs> It's the inflection. Yes. That's what it tells you. Yeah. 
And so how old were you when you discovered these papers, when they fell out of the safe? I was 30 years old. Mother uh, had been killed in a car wreck and Daddy wanted us back home. And I was to inherit his business and I was working there in the office. So it was appropriate that I would do that. And it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't a surprise, but names and I cost $3.94. <laughs> you cost? I, that was my hospital bill. <laughs> and they had to pay it? I guess they paid it. It was with the papers. Now, was yours a private adoption? Was it was it a private adoption. Judge Israel, who was a judge in Albany, had a relative that uh, named Dr. Pendergrass that got me. And whatever I, whether I was a boy or a girl, when I was born, it, I was going to be theirs. Now, were you your mom and dad's first? Yes. They'd been married oh, from 1929 to, four, to 42. Did you ever find out, because I never definitively find out, why my parents could not have children? Yes. I found in the attic, there's, there's a really neat thing to have grown up in a house that nobody had ever moved out of. And for me to come there, and Mama was dead, and by then Daddy was dead, and I was cleaning out the attic, and things just fall out. Yes, Mama had something that I never heard of anywhere else called undulant fever. That's why she couldn't have children. Those who did not have children, uh, I think there was a kind of a stigma or a shame. I know. think there was, and I think that you judge not because perhaps my father was going to the war. I have no earthly idea who he was, but I have names for her mother. But no, when you get the best of the best of parents, and yet I can share some things with you. Uh, who wants to go find somebody? They they went through a problem, and and I'm I'm happy. Right. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you weren't curious though, exactly like what the origin story was. Daddy said that my mother was not well. And she was young. Um, the thing that bothers me the most is the lack of medical records. Ah. The rest doesn't matter particularly to me. Yeah. I'm very creative and mother wasn't. You know, where did all this come from? But I've learned to accept this is, I just came into this world as Anne and I just live in my own skin and happy with it. That's wonderful. So in those records, did it name your birth mother? Yes, in an address in Atlanta, and it named her parents, but father unknown. Uh, did you uh, ever do much research about her, about like who? No. She, no. Okay. I felt like that I had been given such a wonderful opportunity in life. I thought that was hurtful to parents that were so generous to bring me into their lives. 
You know, I, I could sense. tell you my birth mother's name, but I don't tell anybody. I've never told anybody. Well, I'm it not doesn't asking. matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I've I'm, enjoyed my creativity, and it drove my adopted mother crazy. Hmm. How did that creativity manifest itself? I like to draw and paint and and make things make things pretty. And um, I do have an interior design degree. Daddy and I had a deal. If I would um, learn his business, I could have my art. Ah. But Mama said, you only can paint in the bathroom. <laughs> Excuse this word, but it was hers. All artists are queer, and you're not going to do that. Well, it's me. I wake up thinking color. I see color everywhere. It is the major sense I have. And she says, if you want to paint, just paint in the bathroom. You know that word queer is now being embraced. Yeah. You know that, right? Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's having quite the moment. Quite the moment. <laughs> That's why I, I hesitate to say exactly what she said. But she went off one day out of town, and I was left with my nanny. And uh, I went in the bathroom, and the bathrooms were tile. They had people during the war that could do jobs like tile. And the homes that were in my neighborhood had a lot of tile. Well, the bathroom was tile. I went in there. I knew she meant sit on the cold tile floor <laughs> and paint. I painted that bathroom from the floor to the ceiling, from the tub to the toilet to the windows. It had birds and butterflies and flowers and everything all over it. And she came home and she said, what did you do? I said, you said I could paint in the bathroom. She didn't say I could paint in the bathroom. <laughs> but I have, I have a bit of mischief in me. <laughs> and did she leave it? No. She painted over it? No, she had Johnny Benyard, who was our houseman, wash it off. Oh. Uh. He scrubbed it off, and he was with us all my life and was helped me with the children. And that's a whole other story. But when I painted my youngest son green with temper paint because he wanted to be the Hulk for Halloween, Johnny said, I just remember when you painted the bathroom. Please, let's don't paint the bathroom and paint the children so the tub turns green. <laughs> So, your mother kind of didn't want to embrace this oh, no, creative. No. She was like discouraging. She of was from uh, more than discouraging, forbidden. I mean, and then I went to Penn State to college, and I had what I thought was so wonderful. I got to be in an art show with a piece of um, Scandinavian raya, which is yarn that you've made into something. Um, 
in in this show. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and she came to see me, and I was showing her my piece. She said, "And all nice girls do needlepoint." I thought, "Not in this lifetime am I going to do that." <laughs> but you will see a bit of it around here. And when she died, there were pieces she hadn't finished, and I did finish them for her. But you know, I'm old enough now to just kind of say, you know, you sure were a naughty little thing. Now I think <laughs> back at her, you were gonna paint. <laughs> well, you stood up for yourself. I did. And I mean, there are people who live with the regrets because they did not stand up for their artistic self. Right. And yeah. her house was all nice and beige and all, and you will see the colors in my house. It's warm. What do you call these walls? Would you call it peach or salmon or? You may have to take this out of your podcast. <laughs> Friend of mine, man, just one, Billy McAfee. I don't know if you remember him. I know the he name. loved to hunt and fish and all. Came in here when I first moved from the big house and he said, Goodness me, Miss Ann, you have painted this place titty pink. <laughs> so that's what it is. It's a darker titty in the, in, it in the living room. It didn't say that on the paint can, I would uh, imagine. No, it did not. Only he <laughs> could say that, teasing me. Your dad, did he? Dad had, encourage Daddy had, or embrace or yes he did he, he encouraged it a great deal and daddy was rather creative uh -huh. now mama wouldn't would not fly and she did not like to travel and so I went all over the world with daddy he didn't care whether I went to school or not places like New York London Paris we had department stores and frequently went to New York uh, on buying trips. I've been <laughs> buying clothes for stores since I was five years old. And that's its own art. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, I like display. I like um, fabric, all that, that, that went with what he was doing. And he... He added to what I did. Let me tell you an interesting story when I say Daddy didn't care whether I went to school or not. We were in New York, and we would take walks. We would go to the theater. We'd go to the opera. Uh, wonderful. We'd go to the museums. That was education for me. Um, we were walking down the street and got to the New York City Library, and the two big lions are outside. And he looked at me, now Daddy is 6'6", six, six. and if you push it, I'm 5'2". So, so you can see us together. And he said, I'm going to stand out here, and I want you to go in the library, and I want you to check out Gone with the Wind. 
he handed me a $20 bill. He did not, he said, I don't know whether it cost anything to join the library, but I want you to do that. Well, I go up those big steps and he's out there with those lions. I went in there and I checked out Gone with the Wind and brought it back to him. And I never sat in a classroom that I remember doing something that way. When I rode with him to the stores back and forth, we did multiplication tables. We did things like you would ride down the road and see a car tag. Say it said Minnesota. He said, do you know anything about Minnesota? Not really. He said, the next trip we take, I want you to tell me something about Minnesota. So that made me have to go back and we had encyclopedias that were before the computer days, of course. Was it the Britannica? Uh-huh. So you had to look it up and tell him some things about that. I can multiply and add and subtract faster than my fingers would do the calculators because of his trips. It didn't matter whether I went to school or not. He wanted me to go with him one time, and it was midterm exams. And this lady, I'm sure she wasn't an old lady, but I thought she was about 500 when I had her for geography, and he knew her. Now, Daddy and all those long legs go in the junior high up to her room, and he says, Nanny Blunt, I want her to take the exam now. Well, Nanny Munt said, nope, she might tell somebody. He said, the only person she can tell is me. We go, we're going to New York. Give her that. He sat back in those long legs wrapped around that desk, and he sat there. She put that desk down. I took it and handed it back to her. He, he was my teacher. What a wonderful gift. It was so wonderful, so wonderful. Yeah, sounds like y'all had a great relationship. We had, I adored him, I miss him every day. We could just look at each other. He was the kind of daddy, mom would go, go to see her parents and tend to them a lot. Before I went off to college, he said, uh, don't tell your mama, but I need for you to learn how to drink. So we have a little bourbon in, in the garden room in the afternoon. He said, I don't want you to taste that and then get in trouble. It was a good, he, he was good at that. And he, he never whipped me. He could just look at me. And that was, that was enough. What's the kind of thing that he would give you the look? What, what would be something where he'd give you the look? Well, <laughs> you're asking a lot of stuff, boy. <laughs> My, our, our friend, uh, Margaret Wilson, whose daddy was the Methodist preacher, we were running for president of the student body of Albany High. And the school wasn't locked up, so we didn't break in the school. You just opened the door and went in at You night. went in. We went in. and up During off hours. During off hours when the lights were not on. 
so we go in and you go upstairs and there's a mezzanine up there and it, that's the front of the school and it has this ledge well I'm the one that likes to climb trees and things but so I volunteered to take the banner out and put it up in front of the school all across this big school well the windows opened out it's real easy to shinny out, <laughs> and I, I shinnied out, and I got the banner up. It's real difficult to come back in if the window's out, and you've got to come over that hump, but I did it. Well, the next morning when Daddy took me to school, and he always did, and he always kissed me goodbye, and we always said, I love you, and he says, oh, look at that banner from Margaret. Isn't that... Isn't it, that's really nice. I wonder how it got up there. And he turned and looked at me, said, all he said was, you put it there, didn't you? I said, yes, sir. The look on his face, like, don't you know you could have fallen and broken your neck? Don't ever do anything that stupid again. <laughs> he didn't say that. He didn't punish me. He didn't. And see, I haven't forgotten. Yeah. And that's been a long, long time. time. I mean, if I was 16 and 79 now, that's a long time. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. I do want to ask you about church wells because it was a fixture in Albany when, when I grew up. Um, like Rosenberg's right. was. Um, so Churchwell's was, it wasn't just a women's store. It was really kind of it was a, a department store. But it was family owned, correct? Yes. My, you may tell you the story? Sure. Okay. My grandfather and his brother, Uncle John, and other siblings grew up in Brookfield, Georgia. Their father was uh, a preacher and a farmer and every Saturday Uncle John and Papa Churchill went in to Tifton to take the money from the farm and they'd go on the on the train well this one Saturday they had been saving money saving money that their daddy didn't know they were saving not not his money they didn't take his money but like he got they got paid for working on the farm Okay, so they they got off the train and they went to Abbeville, Georgia. And they went to a boarding house and stayed. They had $500. They put together a store in Abbeville and took the money from the first day at the store home to the boarding house and put the money under their pillow and slept with it. The store caught on fire and burned down. But they had the money. So they just started over. And that's where the first store started. And that's where he met, when Papa Churchill met my grandmother that I'm named for. Okay, then they had at one point over 100 stores in all these small towns. All in Georgia or all, throughout the? All, 
mostly in Georgia, some in Jacksonville, some in um, Florida. Florida. And as time went on in the wars and whatever, this was like in 18, before 1898. So post-Civil War, but pre-World War I. Pre-World War I. Before the turn of the 20th century. Right. They came here in Albany in 1898, and you can go to Churchill's uh, in the in the back unless they've tarred over it, and there are big plates in the ground that have A.F. Churchill written on them. And they started the store in Albany. Um, and Daddy came here because the man that was the manager of the store was gambling and Papa Church wasn't going to put up with that. <laughs> and Mom and Daddy just liked it here, so they stayed. But it's interesting because tomorrow I'm going to the 125th anniversary of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. I'm one of the oldest family members that's there because these grandparents that came to start church with store uh, came in 1898. Wow. So I have a picture of their home that was where the police station is now on Commerce Street, which is now called Oglethorpe. Mm -hmm. um, they really included me in the history, and I have newspaper clippings and all of what was there. But I really had... You know, I learned the business and learned the math and learned all that. Uh, but the creativity of the stores was just within me. That's what you brought to it. Yeah, I really, you know, just give me a old funny mannequin and I can make her look grand. Yeah. Daddy had a problem one time as we got older. We had a store in America's. And um, I was in charge of being in charge of that store. And so he said, we're having a little um, cash flow problem. See if you can fix it. Well, I love to go up there. I uh, a little sidebar that Miss Lillian Carter shopped there, and she called me to come help her get her clothes up to go to the, the uh Democratic Convention when Jimmy Carter was nominated for president. 1976. She didn't want to wear stockings because it was hot in the summertime. I said, Miss Lillian, my mama said, all nice ladies wear stockings even in the summer. I'm putting them in that suitcase. Anyway, that was that she and I were good friends. Did she wear the stockings? Yes, she wore stockings. <laughs> <laughs> but on this day that uh, Daddy had said he was having a little cash flow. My son John went with me up there and uh, said I had to leave the children with the nanny <laughs> and go and do what he asked me to. And, but John wanted to go, so he said, could he go in the attic? I said, yes, yeah, suits me. So I got ready to find him to go home, and I'm still not sure what I'm going to do to get this money. I went in the attic. All this stuff was up there. Pointy-toe shoes that were out of style, just 
pieces of this, pieces of that. I came downstairs and I said, folks, we're going to have us a yard sale. Saturday after next, park your car someplace else in the backyard of the store. We're going to haul this junk out of this attic and sell it. We did. The next day, I went, Daddy was in Waycross. I rode to Waycross and handed him a bank bag with $30,000. Oh, my word. I mean, it's like, he thought, what did she just do? He's cleaned out that. So it solved two problems. Yeah. All the junk in the attic. Is gone. And the cash flow. And the cash flow. Now that's some business sense right there. That's that's you spotting an opportunity. And I, I was going to ask you, where did that kind of come from? Where did that sort of business smart come from? I think he aided and he aided and 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 trained me. But there's just something in me. I just see things like that. Mm-hmm. Opportunity. I see an opportunity, and. I, I have a friend that's now deceased named Jimmy Watkins, and he says, Ann doesn't march to the same tune as the rest of us, but we love her anyway. <laughs> but I'll, I'll just think up something that you think is kind of funny, and, and, and it'll work. Yeah. And it worked as I was a, a citizen of Albany. I have loved helping Albany in the last 40 years since Mama's been gone and I've been back. Well, there's also, when you go on these buying trips to New York, the recognition that Albany is not New York, but it's also not Atlanta. You have to have some sort of sense of who it is. Who's your customer? I mean, Who's who... my customer? But this has brought tears to my eyes on numerous occasions. Um, the African-American community knows me as Mr. Churchwell's store. And that's what many of them call me. They don't call me Ann. as Mr. Churchwell's store. I know I first went to, when I first started doing some social work, I went to a meeting at one of the African-American churches. And the... Um, chair of the meeting leaned over and said, and I was the only white face in the room, he said, are you, and pointed his finger at me, and he said, are you Mr. Churchwell's daughter? I said, yes, sir, Reverend Cherry. And he looked at those folks, and he said, you can trust her. That's Mr. Churchwell's daughter. And so many, many of our friends in this town have known me as Mr. Churchwell's daughter. Daddy gave of himself and of his store. If At the end of the season, you've got a top for a little girl's dress or in, in the bottom of another one, the things don't match. But and you may have a red towel and a purple towel. Well, yeah, we might not just want to bring that home, but 
If you don't have a towel or you don't have a dress, you're mighty glad to have one. And Daddy was very, very generous to the um, churches in town in Head Start. And that was, um, that gave me an end. And all I could say was, I'll hold your hand and we'll do the best we can. And we had a lot of success with that. There are businesses um, that are kind of takers. And I think one of the things we lose in the everything getting big, 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 consolidated is that sense of local ownership and community that uh, if your father had been a taker, he would not have been nearly as successful in business as he was. No, he would not. I guess in, in time you'll talk about the race problems we had in Albany. Our store was never bombed or... or um, picketed, Picketed. Uh, we were kind to everybody. And it was so interesting is I um, did this work, the social work, what people would say. A lady would, I would work with her and she'd say, you know what, I bought my wedding dress at Churchill's. And she would tell me about it. Or people would, I'd meet people and say, oh, we love to go to town on Saturday. And see, I went, I'd go to town if, if you weren't supposed to be going to school, I'd go back to the store with Daddy. I may, you know, clean up a counter or work and, you know, do whatever we needed. But I'd walk all over town, too. It suited me fine just to stop and sit on the curb with the man that had no legs, that had a tin cup, and talk to him. I've got enough sense and had from the time I knew I was adopted that I was brought to Albany with a silver spoon in my mouth. And I could have been with parents that beat me, that didn't develop my skills, that didn't love me, and, um, you know, were, were horrible. I know some parents that, that that adopted children that were not quality parents. I had enough sense to know that I didn't have on that outfit because I was blessed that Alan Churchill gave me, it put me in the dress I had on. I think that's an adopted person's thing. And there's this notion of people who feel entitled to something by virtue of their lineage. Um, because I was born to thus and so, I'm entitled to. It's kind of like the lord of the manor. Right. You know, I never felt that um, because I was always aware that I was not born to these people. I was placed with them. I was placed with them. I was always very... Um aware that people had little to eat and our cook would help me take food to people. I, I've just always been very aware of that and one of the, I enjoyed my work 
was sad. Uh, the social work, it, which led me to the Governor's Council on Developmental Disabilities, and um, I did a lot of work for them when all over the nation doing speeches and seminars telling what Georgia did, and we do a good job. My job as a social worker was make sure that our underserved had proper school, health, housing, whatever. And I've seen some things that would break your heart into pieces. We do not realize that where you and I are sitting within walking distance, maybe kind of a long walk, but walking distance of where we grew up within walking distance, there are people who will go to bed cold or hot, depending on the weather, they will go to bed hungry. They will go to bed in places that we would not even consider being a bed. There are people that live in homes. One of the children whose mother brought her to me at a, at a meeting, holding her in her arms, the child was four or five years old, Dee Dee. Dee Dee had cerebral palsy, Dee Dee was blind, had some medical things. I went to their home, had so many holes in the roof that when it rained, it didn't just rain a little bit, it rained buckets. The uh, shower was so rusty, I went to Easter Seal, and you can tell it doesn't bother me one bit to ask you for something for somebody that needs it. I would starve to death before I ask you for a piece of bread, but I, I don't mind asking anybody, help me help these people. I had to get a, a bath chair because her mother couldn't hold her. And now the government had the um, children like that go to school. And that's just plain whatever. Anyway, I had worked in this uh, volunteers that built a wheelchair ramp. I got her a wheelchair. She could go to school. Well, I go checking on little Miss Dee Dee. Just like just the middle of the morning, all of a sudden I'd walk in where school was. And uh, the woman that was supposed to be helping her maybe learn something said, when she hears you, when she hears your voice, she just turns her little head and looks and she, she could feel my hand on her arm when I would come and, and talk to her. It was, little Diddy died. She couldn't live with all the illnesses she had, but it has been wonderful to think and I put all this together, this adopted child that was brought into this community and had the world by the tail and had beautiful things and a happy life and travel and all that, could then have a father that would help her feel comfortable taking care of people that um, 
did not have much. It's a sense of empathy or compassion uh, born of your own experience. Uh -huh. It's my obligation to do that as I went about for the governor's council. I was in Chicago and I looked up and there were 2,000 people in this room that I was speaking to. This five foot blue eyed southern girl said, I thought, how did I get here? How did I get here? Well, I did my speech and at the end of all my speeches, I quote, I love Dr. Seuss. I quote Dr. Seuss from the story of the Lorax. Unless people like you care a whole awful lot, nothing will happen. No, it will not. They clapped. And in a minute, this woman gets up and she runs up on the stage and grabs me and she says, she feels it. She feels it. And my friend that was head of the, the governor's council said he didn't know Blue Eyes could get that big, but he said you had the grace to stand there and let her acknowledge that that's what we need to do is look after other people. It's really, really cool. Did you get a degree in social work? No, I have an interior design merchandise degree. But you did social work. I did. A friend of mine that was a doctor said, I've got a job for you. I said, what? Because I worked at the symphony for a while because my husband was 25 years older than me. We knew he wouldn't live and he said, you gotta have something to do. So I learned to write grants. I, we went to FSU and I and down to Tallahassee and I went back to school and learned to write grants. And so I was the executive director of the symphony. How did you meet your husband? He was a friend of mine's daddy. He was a doctor and had gotten a divorce. He lived in Williamsburg and came down here. Was there a lot of like whispering or scandal or gossiping about uh, dating somebody, marrying somebody so much older? Oh, yeah. And how did you handle that? Well, mostly his daughter was kind of an ogre. Uh, they said, you can't, you can't handle that. I said, you just watch. And he just, he had had such a hard time. We had the best time. We traveled and we we do things like just get in the car and go to Callaway Gardens to look at, look at, like today. We could ride up there and look at the moms. So, did you all have a conversation about having children, or did it just happen? Oh, I had a first marriage. Oh, your children came from your first marriage. Uh huh. Okay. But he, but he was, as my children said, Mama, Daddy, he was our daddy. Hmm. Well, were you very intentional about having children or did you just like let nature happen? It just happened. It did. Are you, are you glad you had children? Sometimes I'll say that the <laughs> next life I'm going to just have dogs, but... Uh. <laughs>
You've done your bit. I've done my bit. But yes, I enjoyed raising my children. <laughs> yeah, that's neat. That's wonderful. And I'm very close to some some more than others. Yeah. The son that Mark that lives in Charlotte and I are very, very close. How many kids did you, you have? I have five. Oh, my word. Let's see, David has several palsy because he was two and a half months premature. This bone disease I have manifested itself then. What is the disease? It's an autoimmune system disease. It's one of the hundred kind of rheumatoid. It makes the bone go to mush. Hmm. In your hands? No, in my whole body. Oh, my word. And so, but you've you've got good doctors that have been able yeah, to... Yeah, uh, Emory has been wonderful. Right. And also a place in Macon called Orford, Georgia. Yeah. Did your interest in developmental disabilities come from uh, your own personal experience with having a child? I, I would think so. Yeah. So you did your work after having that child? Yeah, after after my husband died in, in 96. See, I was young. And I couldn't just sit at home, and I don't do well looking envelopes. I have to give to an organization. And this doctor friend of mine said, I've got something you need to do, and... I just sort of figured it out, but then I went, I could see go back and how Reverend Cherry said, that's Mr. Churchwell's daughter, you can trust her. It's hard to remember that in the kind of public civil war we're having. Mm -hmm. It's hard to remember the basic decency of people. It is, and then as you go out, like you say, People can be so rude. I was on the Chihau board, and one of the, the zookeepers told a, a man who was on the city commission, who was very anti-white ladies, he said, you better be nice to this lady because she looks after our folks. You just have to... Just. And his little boy said to me one day, this is good knowledge. Now listen to me, folks. This little, I was wanting David to hurry up. School was out. We had things to do, places to go. And this little boy came by the car, and he stuck his head in the window, and he said, Ma'am, just be easy. Just be easy. <laughs> so you just need to just be easy. <laughs> just look and do what you need to do. Easy does it. Mm-hmm. Take it easy. Take it easy. That's going to be hard enough on its own. Yeah. You don't have to make it hard. Uh-uh. Don't make it any harder. <laughs> He'll come on out, and then y'all go on to whatever you've got to do, taking everybody to their lessons. <laughs> you talked about that word that your mother used, queer. How how did you evolve? What's your experience been? Um. Uh, it never has bothered me. I like people for who who they are, and I found it very distasteful for people to look at somebody that was a, would be a dear friend, and this man I'm thinking of is gone now. But 
he lived in the neighborhood, and he was in the yard when I was born. I mean, when they brought me home, they had a big to-do in the front yard, <laughs> and it's in my baby book. He was there. Um, my first husband had a lot of homosexuality within his family, and I have two sons that are homosexual. Uh, I'm an advocate for them. I get very passionate and angry about people being unfair and making like it's um, a religious thing or he played with dolls. That's stupid. I am really an advocate and have some of my dearest friends in this world are gay. And your sons knew when they were little and now that you stand for them. They do, and we. one of my sons that uh, lives in Charlotte is married, and they laugh and say, Todd's your favorite, and Todd, Todd loves you his more husband. than his, his husband, husband is, your your favorite. is my favorite, instead of my five children and the, some of the others, you know, they, they're in-laws, Todd's my favorite, and Todd loves you more than he loves his mama. See, that's just neat. I had a fun experience the Christmas they married. They married in, they were in, in school in California. I mean, they were teaching out there and moved to this side of the country to be nearer Todd's family and me. Because uh, it, it takes a day, really, to get here if we need something. Of course, it was kind of instant in San Francisco, and I had pictures and all that. Well, I thought, Christmas, what can I do to make Todd feel a part of our family? So I decided a wedding cake. But I kept that quiet, and I went around, and the lady at the Publix helped me prettiest wedding cake you ever saw. And I hid it in my closet. And Mark and Todd come with everybody for Christmas and Mark's looking and looking. What is she having for dessert? I wonder what she's having for dessert. And nobody knew. But I had told one of the grandsons that I was going to need some help. And that he, when we got through with the meal, he was to take the dishes in the kitchen while I got the cake. Well, see, Mark didn't go in my closet. Well, I bring that cake out. The tears just fell. I said, this is your wedding cake. And Todd, we're glad you're part of our family. You never know where your stories are gonna go. I went back and the lady at the bakery, I said, come here a minute. And she said, I told her how pretty it was and how tasty it was. And I told her the story. She said, you know, nobody has ever come back and thanked me for a cake I made. And she said, in your story, I'll never forget. And I love it that my children will talk back about things like that. And so probably at Christmas, I say, Mom, what are you having for Christmas? 
for dessert. And uh, then they'll talk about the cake. You know, we Southerners love to tell stories. Oh, and I yeah. think they're distinctive. And um, what you've shown is that there's the capacity to create story, to create a moment that people will then tell later on. Uh-huh. If we get struck by lightning right now and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, uh-huh. what is your legacy? My legacy is, I think, the strength of Ann. I just, I've managed this terrible disease. I've lived in my house for 18 months and haven't gone anywhere but the hospital and the doctor. I'm strong. And some of the stories you tell, I'm mischievous and creative and whatever, but I'm strong. And I can manage. I've got, I've got good stuff that was taught me. And, and I make it. I sense a real gratitude in you for yes. the life you've been given. Oh, I've had a wonderful life. I've had a wonderful life. Queen Anne, thank you for your time. <laughs> I enjoyed. <laughs> I knew you as a little boy, and I loved your mama, and I loved your daddy. That makes two of us. Thanks. And that Sunday, Anne did indeed go to the 150th anniversary celebration of St. Paul's Episcopal Church there in downtown Albany. Um, she is living history. She knows a lot of tales. She knows where the bodies are buried. Next week, we'll talk to a friend of mine whose name is Joan I usually get in arguments with, but when I sit down and don't argue with her, I hear these wonderful stories that really explain how she came to be the woman she is. And in two weeks, the woman who's been my therapist for 15 years, who's retiring, Tammy Bell. God, I'm going to miss her. What will we do without Tammy? We'll have to get along. Have to graduate or find somebody else. Thanks for listening. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A thank you from the bottom of my heart to everyone who has contributed to Man Listening from the very beginning. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. All through history, the theme of greed seems to move everything. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks. <laughs>